On behalf of Pastor Mark Driscoll, we want to thank you for allowing us to bring you Jesus-centered Bible teaching. Like Pastor Mark always says, it's all about Jesus. To get all of Pastor Mark's sermons, blogs, books, and other content, please visit us at markdriscoll.org. There you can also sign up to receive additional free content from Pastor Mark and support this ministry with a gift of any amount. Thank you. Well, howdy, partner. Pastor Mark Driscoll here. We continue our Bible study in Ecclesiastes. This week, we look at the cultural tug of war as our meaningless life uh, trip through Ecclesiastes lands in chapter 8, verses 2 through 17. Uh, start with a question. Did you ever play tug of war as a kid? Uh, some months ago, at the end of the last school year, I went to my kids' school, and they had their field day activities. I don't know if you recall those. And one of the big events was the tug of war, and we played it when I was a kid as well. And uh, usually the way it works, there's a big long rope. There are some kids on the left, some kids on the right, and in the middle is a red bandana. And the goal is to pull that bandana over a line so that one side, left or right, emerges victoriously. To make that happen, the left and the right are pulling as hard as they can, trying to drag everyone else in their direction. Politically speaking, most people in the Western world today feel like that red bandana. Are you feeling that way? It's amazing to think that we're a long ways off from an election, but those candidates and their issues are dominating the headlines and domineering cultural discussions. And what happens every election season is that a predictable pattern emerges, at least in the Western world, particularly in the U.S. Uh, as soon as we are told there's going to be an election, everybody runs up and grabs the rope. Uh, the liberals grab the left side of the rope, the conservatives grab the right side of the rope, and they're both pulling with all of their might, trying to drag the majority that are in the middle over the line, one direction or the other. So what happens is that many people, perhaps even most people, the majority of people feel like that red bandana. Uh, they're getting pulled by the right and pulled by the left and pulled to the right and pulled to the left, hoping uh, those who are pulling to drag them over the line and to have them join their team so that they can emerge victorious. Well, this left and right, this liberal and conservative view is really a division. And a division literally means two visions. And where two visions coexist, division always exists because two visions cannot peaceably, continually coexist. They can pull intention for a while, but inevitably, invariably, one's going to win, one's going to lose. And in various cultures, particularly in the West, with the political left and the political right, uh, these two visions are the fault line over which there is constant division and pulling. Pulling on the left, the view of human nature is that we are basically good and evolving and so the answer is a vision of creating institutions starting with government agencies and nonprofits that harness, channel, and release the goodness of human nature. Uh, so the view and the vision of the left 
and, and the direction that they are pulling for politics and agencies and education and dollars is we're good and we can get better. Pulling on the other side of the proverbial rope is the political, cultural right. The view of human nature is that we're basically bad and broken. And the result is a, a vision of creating institutions that provide restraint. And so there is a favor toward cops and jails and wars. Um, on the right, the view is that we are bad and that as bad people, we need to be protected from ourselves and from one another. And so you can see this division and the result is both sides grab the rope and pull really hard to the left. We're good people. And if we could um, spend more money and build more organizations and institutions, we could be even better people pulling to the right. No, people are lazy, people are sinful, uh, people are selfish, and left to their own devices, they would do great harm. And so people need to be protected from other people. And uh, as a result, um, we are not living under the naive myth, they would say, that good people are getting better. Instead, bad people are getting worse. And those are the two visions. Now, let me say that as this tug of war happens between the left and the right, most people, I believe, are in the middle. And, and Christians oftentimes find themselves in the middle. Uh, on one hand, perhaps there's a bit of sympathy toward the cultural and political left. Well, we were made in the image and likeness of God, bestowed with dignity, value, and worth. We do have a conscience. We are unique in God's sight. And particularly when someone meets the Lord Jesus Christ and is filled with the Holy Spirit, they become a new person with a new nature to live a new life. And so there is hope for people to change and live a better life. But then peering over, if you are a Christian to the right and listening to their um, arguments and their rhetoric, as it were, um, you also realize, well, most people never meet Jesus. All they have is an old selfish sin nature. And that even when somebody becomes a Christian, we're all still struggling with sin. And we too can be driven as God's people by sin and selfishness. And we understand that the world is a dangerous place and that the world is filled with some dangerous people. Hence, we feel the political tug of war personally. Do you feel it? Are you more pulled toward the left or toward the right? Are you one of those people in the middle? And it really depends on who you're talking to and how they're presenting the argument. And you are pulled back and forth, swayed to the left and the right. Well, the, the persistent question is this, how should a Christian engage with rulers and systems that dominate our public life? How do we deal with government? How do we deal with business? How do we deal with leadership? How do we deal with culture? Most Christians struggle to know what is the faithful, biblical, godly way to engage. And that's where we find ourselves in Ecclesiastes this week. 3,000 years ago, the world's wisest man, second only to Jesus Christ, and in that day, the world's most dominating king, and arguably um, the richest king in the history of the world, said the only way to deal with institutions is with wisdom. So in this section of Ecclesiastes, Solomon gives us wise counsel to navigate living under authority while living subject ultimately to God's authority. Firstly, he says, wisely engage those in power. Here's how he says it, Ecclesiastes 8.2. Um, Obey the king, says the king. Obey the king since you vowed to God 
that you would. Don't try to avoid doing your duty and don't stand with those who plot evil, for the king can do whatever he wants. His command is backed by great power. No one can resist or question it. Those who obey him will not be punished. Those who are wise will find a time and a way to do what is right, for there is a time and a way for everything, even when a person is in trouble. Here's what he's saying. God works through authority. Some of you immediately bristle. If you have a tattoo, play guitar, smoke, live in a city, probably very much receive that like a cat does a hose. Not very excited. God works through authority. This is why in the Bible we hear a lot about kings who wield political authority and prophets and priests who wield spiritual authority. We also hear about Jesus submitting to the Father's will throughout his life the constant encouragement for citizens to respect their governmental rulers. Romans 13 comes to mind. Wives to respect their husbands. Ephesians, Colossians, Corinthians, the list goes on. Children to honor and obey their parents, all the way back to the Ten Commandments, and employees to wholeheartedly work for their employer. How does this sound to you? Does this sound right and good or wrong and bad? Respect for authority is perhaps less popular and fashionable today than at any time in the history of the world. I, for one, cannot think of any major movement on social media today gaining steam among young people that is based upon personal restraint, personal responsibility, and respect for authority. Not at all. Add to this that the United States of America, my great home country, uh, is a nation that was birthed in revolution to overthrow authority. Add to that that probably you, as well as I, are Protestant, which is another revolutionary protest movement to overthrow authority. And the pull of the proverbial rope is not toward respect, honor, and submission to authority. Let's just say this is deep in our weeds. And some of you would push back and say, but the American cause and the Protestant cause was good. Fine. Okay, let's go with that. Nonetheless, um, it's not always the time to rebel. It's not always the time to uh, overtake, overcome, or ignore authority. And what can happen is when you're in a religious environment in history, birthed in um, a, pro a protest and revolution movement, and you're part of a nation that is part of a protest and revolution history, you can think that that's the answer to everything. And sometimes it isn't, just like uh, a hammer uh, is good for a nail, but not good for a thumb. It all depends on what the object is. And it's popular for sinners by nature and choice who are selfish and sinful to just openly rebel against authority. And sometimes we'll do this by looking at authority and saying, well, they're sinful and selfish, so we're going to rebel against them. But the truth is we're rebelling against them because we're also sinful and selfish. And so it's just a bunch of hypocrites flinging mud without either really having the moral high ground. So knowing this, perhaps a small minority of you will say, no, I, I believe in authority. I respect authority. I submit to authority. I honor authority. The majority that are probably listening to this would say, nah, I grew up on uh, gangster rap and or punk rock. And uh, as a result, as a Protestant American, uh, I am not really big on submission to authority. Solomon's not saying that all authority should always be submitted to, but even when we engage authority that we disagree with, 
we need to do so in a way that is godly. So he's not forbidding the pursuit of cultural change, political change, legal change. He is articulating from God's perspective the wise way to pursue that in a way that is godly and good because the ends don't uh, justify the proverbial means. The key is to do the right thing at the right way, at the right time, with a right heart, for the right reasons, not just to have the right cause. And he gives us five points for wise counsel in interacting with rulers, be they rulers in our home, parents, uh, our job, employers, our church, leaders, or our government, politicians. Number one, he says, essentially, honor God in all you do. That's what he's saying. If you believe that godliness is important, then ungodly means do not vindicate the pursuit of an allegedly godly ends. What he's saying is you need to check your motive. You need to check your mission. You need to check your means and ask, if I'm seeking change in my home, change in my company, change in my church, change in my government, whatever the case may be, is it godly? Both the ends that I'm pursuing and the means by which I am pursuing them. So he's not forbidding, um, you know, disagreeing with authority, but he is articulating a way to engage and to work for that change in a way that honors the Lord. Number two, he's saying, remember that those in power, uh, they wield authority that is real and often God-given. So your spouse can divorce you, your employer can fire you, your church can discipline you, your government can incarcerate you. There, there is a way by which their authority can really wield some negative consequences in your life. So you really got to think through what authority do they have? How do I engage this? How do I minimize the damage that I bring to myself and others? And here's what happened. Fools get all emotional and worked up and they forget this and they run headlong into a firing squad, right? This is the spouse who wants to make changes in their marriage or the employer who wants to make changes in their company or the member who wants to make changes in their church or the citizen who wants to make changes in their government. And foolishly, emotionally, they just run ahead without a real good plan and as a result, they don't affect change except for making their own life worse. Point number three says, pick your battles. Not every hill is worth dying on. Not every cause is equally just. And if you're the kind of person always in search of some cause or some conflict, you need to spend a season focused internally on what might be wrong with you before you start working externally to fix what's wrong with everyone and everything else. If you're always the person who is just looking for a battle, looking for a cause, looking for a war, jumping on a bandwagon, that's not godly. Not every issue is equally important. Not every issue is equally critical. Not every issue is equally urgent. And some people are just, um, well, they're just kind of contentious by nature, always looking for a fight. You got to pull back and ask, am I just someone who's always looking for a fight? Or is this a fight that God would have me to engage in? Number four, do not participate in ungodly plots and schemes. What happens is if you don't like the leadership that's over you, again, this can be in your home, in your business, in your organization, in your church, um, in your government. 
What can happen is you want change so bad that you're starting to compromise your own integrity to obtain it. That's what he's talking about with ungodly plots and schemes. These can be overt, you know, war on social media in the courts or in the streets. These can be covert with office politics, um, rumor mongering, betrayal, gossip. And here's his point, basically, if a mob is forming, don't just run out, grab a pitchfork from the shed and, and join them. Never, never forget this. Judas showed up with a mob. Do you remember that? Judas showed up with a mob to betray Jesus. Um, not every mob is a good and godly one, and not every mob is one that you should join. He's saying, do not participate in ungodly plots and schemes. And those of you who are young, idealistic, and cause-oriented, particularly those of you who are online a lot, I, I love you and I would like you to just take this to heart. Five, he says, look for the God-given time and process by which to seek to do the right thing in the right way at the right time for the right reason, in the home, on the job, in the church, in the government. Look for a godly way that is provided by God to work for the change that you believe is right. And until or unless that happens, what you need to do is prayerfully, patiently, perhaps wait. They say, but it's, it's an urgent matter, which means it needs to be dealt with in the most prudent way. Otherwise, you could make matters worse in your home, worse in your business, worse in your church, worse in your city, worse in your nation. You could make things worse. And that's what impetuance, that's what impatience, that's what youthful exuberance can oftentimes do. It's all sail, no rudder. Practically, let me talk about what this means. What he's saying is, look for a God-given opportunity to work through a process that is acceptable to bring about the potential change that you are seeking in the organization. Uh, practically then, if you're an abused wife, call the police and work through the legal channels that are available. That's why they're there. If you're an employee who does not like your boss, you can work through the chain of command to make changes, or you can quit and go find another job. If you do not like something your government is doing, you're free to work through the legal channels, the political channels, uh, the freedom of speech channels to engage for change. Um, but, but getting out ahead of God or taking a path that God has not provided is never a safe or wise place to be. And if God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, could live under the rule of the godless Roman Empire, even paying his taxes with coins bearing the emperor's face who was worshipped as a god, there's good reason for you and I to find a way to work under the proverbial rulers over us. To try and find a way to deal with our parents, if we're the kids, to deal with our employer, if we're the employee, to deal with our church leaders, if we're the church member, to deal with our uh, elected officials, if we are a, a citizen. You get the drill. 
some of you will hear this as, oh, you're just wanting to keep people in their place and deny them their freedoms and oppress them. No, no, no. In fact, just the opposite. Sometimes it is fools in the name of liberation who oppress themselves by doing things that God did not decree or doing them in ways that God did not design. And the result is, even if they thought they were helping in the end, they're just hurting themselves and others. Is there a way to bring about godly change? Has God gone before you to provide a way for you to bring that influence for that change? If so, take it. If not, wait and see if God goes before you and opens a way. But if you dishonor God, ignore the authority you were up against, plot and scheme with ungodly people, and rush ahead at the wrong time in the wrong way, even if you do bring about change, it will not be godly, it will not be life-giving, and it probably won't be much better than the very thing you raged against. The truth is it's a lot easier to criticize people who are doing things than it is to do things. It's a lot easier to break something than it is to build something, which is why, I don't know if you've ever watched those uh, television uh, home remodel shows. Uh, we like them at my house. Um, sometimes to save money when they bring in a crew to renovate a house or a kitchen or whatever the case may be, they'll tell the homeowner, well, you can participate in the project and in so doing help save some of the money for the budget. Okay, what can I do? Demolition. You know why? Demolition is easy. If you can pick up a sledgehammer and swing it around, you can do demolition. I have yet to watch a show where they invite the homeowner in to do the skilled finish carpentry, to come in and do the electrical work, uh, to come in and do um, the tile laying in the bathroom. Why? Because those take skilled professionals who know what they're doing. And what oftentimes happens is we look at an organization or institution, again, it can be a business, it can be a church, it can be a governmental agency, it can be the government itself, it can be our family structures and systems and say, you know what, this needs to be redone, where's the sledgehammer? Okay, you're going to break it, but do you have a vision to build something in its place? Do you have a better idea? Do you have a plan? Are you just angry swinging a sledgehammer, bringing death and destruction, and then having nothing to replace it, you may be bringing about change, but you may not be bringing about improvement. And, and I know this is, a, this is a hard word, but a lot of, uh, boy, here's the bottom line. In my now 20 years of pastoral ministry and Bible teaching, which I love, and I appreciate those of you who are tuned in permitting me to participate, um, one thing is held steady, and that is young men listen to me, and they have for years. Since I've begun, the number one category of listeners are 18 to 24-year-old men. After that, it's 24 to 30-year-old men. And, and I, I, I relish that. I praise God for that. I want to be a good steward of that. But at the same time, young men can get very frustrated, very upset, very emotional, and just start attacking leaders and breaking things and declaring war and demanding change but they don't have any plan for what it is they're going to build in its place or how things should actually be done. That's why the Bible says a lot about young men, and it doesn't say anything good about young men, if I can just be honest. And there's a lot of things I said and did as a young man that I would look back on and say, regret that, that was not helpful, broke that, had no idea what I was going to build in its place, was not respecting the authority as I should have. And I tell you, as a guy who's just turned 45, um, submitting to authority is a good thing. And 
particularly if you're a guy with a father wound, it's a really important thing. Furthermore, if you don't like the authority that's in authority over you, you have two choices. Leave that business, leave that church, leave that organization. And if it's a situation where you can't because it's your father or it's your president and there's nothing you can do right now to change that, then it's finding a godly way um, with a godly heart, with a godly plan and a godly motive to work for godly change in a way that honors and glorifies God. And if you can't do that, then just swinging a sledgehammer is not necessarily the good route to go. And just because you're frustrated, you're going to need to constrain and restrain some of that frustration. Otherwise, you're going to be a great demolition crew, uh, but you're not going to build anything or participate in the construction of anything that really is helpful for others. That's the burden that this old guy Solomon is sharing. So his first principle and point, it's a long one, wisely engage those in power. Don't just walk in and scream at your boss. Don't just blow up at your parents. Don't just declare war on the leadership at your church. Don't just, you know, start taking matters into your own hands as a vigilante because you don't like the way that the police are handling some situation. Is there a godly way? And the good godly even protest movements like the civil rights movement found a way to obey this principally. Number two, he says to trust God to rule over all. Ecclesiastes 8, 7 through 9. Indeed, how can people avoid what they don't know is going to happen? None of us can hold back our spirit from departing. None of us have the power to prevent the day of our death. There is no escaping, he says, that obligation, that dark battle. And in the face of death, wickedness will certainly not rescue the wicked. I have thought deeply about all that goes on here under the sun where people have the power to hurt each other. Here's what he's saying. And, and this is a guy in his day. He's in charge of a lot. He rules over a lot. I mean, he's the king of Israel. He's rich. He's wise. He's powerful. He's got an enormous staff. He's got a military. I mean, the guy can go skiing down the pile of gold that he's got stacked up at his house. I mean, he's, he's doing good. But he's saying that there are certain things that are out of everyone's control, including out of his control. There are things that we'd want to change or maybe even things we need to change, but we cannot change them. In fact, no one can change them. These are the things in life that only God can do. Solomon's point is that we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Doesn't matter how hard we try. We can't predict the future, right? Sports bettors and newscasters and prognosticators and marketers try. We don't know what the future holds. We don't know when we're going to die. You don't know. I don't know. We don't know. We don't have an expiration date stamped on our foot that we can look down as we're walking along and guesstimate, well, this is how much time I've got left. And he says, we can't control what nature does. We don't know what the wind's going to do, the rains are going to do. We don't know what's going to be happening. Helicopter flying overhead makes me wonder what's going on right now. There's simply a lot of things that no matter who's in charge, there's simply nothing they can do about them. So what do you do? Here's what he's saying. Trust God who rules over it all. He's talking here about the sovereignty of God. God alone has authority and control over everyone and everything. Solomon says in this life, people use their power to hurt and harm one another. That's true. So what do you do? What do you do when you've harmed others? What do you do when others have harmed you? What do you do when you can't bring about justice? What do you do when you can't fix it or reconcile it? What do you do when you can't fully explain it, articulate it, or understand it? How do you 
apprehend a world that you can't comprehend. Now, I want you to be careful. When we tend to think of those who hurt others, we tend to think of the person sitting on the throne, ruling over their family, business, church, courtroom, or government. But the truth is, the critics standing around them throwing rocks at them, they're hurting too. So we're all guilty. We're all sinners. There's not a world filled with good guys and bad guys, and the bad guys hurt all the good guys. It's that the good guys and the bad guys hurt each other, and the good guys and the bad guys are all guilty of using their power to do harm. There's got to be some humility here. But one day, these various thrones in our homes, in our businesses, our churches, our courtrooms, our governments, all those thrones will be thrown away. And there's only going to be one throne and seated on it will be the risen, ruling, reigning King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Yes, you know who I'm talking about. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. There are certain things, it doesn't matter who's sitting on the throne. They don't rule and reign. They can't bring about change. And even if their intentions are good, sometimes the results are bad. And when that day comes, Jesus is going to judge the living and the dead. And he's the judge who knows all, sees all. He judges all rightly. And what he's saying is this, Solomon is, wickedness will not be rewarded. That's what he says in the face of death, quote, wickedness will certainly not rescue the wicked. You know what? In this life, sometimes wickedness does rescue the wicked. They're evil, and they got themselves in trouble, and they do more evil, and it gets them out of trouble until they stand before the Lord Jesus. And they come to discover, I have not in any way avoided justice. I've just stacked up all my transgressions for the day of eternal justice. See, the truth is, wickedness extends to those who are in power and wickedness extends to those who are under their power. Subsequently, we all need to keep our heads, do our best working for justice in this life by seeking it in just ways and trusting our God to do his part in this life and the life to come. Boy, if you don't believe in the sovereignty of God, if you don't believe in the rulership of God, you're going to be very frustrated living life on this earth you're going to be very frustrated by the fact that there are certain things that are out of your control, but you'll take great comfort if you know that they're under God's control. There are certain things that are just so wicked, it'll be hard for you to stomach them. And then knowing that God sees, knows, judges all justly and will deal with them, it brings some comfort and relief. It doesn't fix everything, but it gives us patience until everything is fixed. We've got to be careful, though. We can't just say, yeah, it's a good thing he's talking about those guys, because we're one of those guys. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have gone astray. All have sought their own path. All have done what is right in their own eyes. We need to be careful. Because what happens sometimes with this conversation of justice, there are some who think, I am Robin Hood, and everyone else are just those who need to be plundered. Now, the truth is, that in various ways and in various times, we have all used the power that has been entrusted to us to harm others, and that's whether we're the leader or the follower. We all know that there are things that are out of our power, but they're not out from under God's authority. That's what he's driving at. And these really hinge together. Wisely engage those in power, point number two, knowing that over them is God, 
who rules over all. You can trust him that the things that are out of your control are under his control and the things that look like they are uh, causing wickedness to win ultimately will be brought to account. There's relief there. There's comfort there. It should bring a bit of peace to the soul and a little patience to the emotions. And then these, these issues, they hinge together. The third one, he says, is to understand that justice fully comes eventually. He gives these seeming injustices. Ecclesiastes 8, 10 through 14. I have seen wicked people buried with honor, yet they were the very ones who frequented the temple and are now praised in the same city where they committed their crimes. This too is meaningless. When a crime is not punished quickly, he says, people feel it is safe to do wrong. But even though a person sins a hundred times and still lives a long time, I know that those who fear God will be better off. The wicked will not prosper, for they do not fear the Lord. Their days will never grow long like the evening shadows. And this is not all that is meaningless in our world. In this life, good people often go treated as though they were wicked. Right? We know that. We know that innocent people are in jail right now. And wicked people are often treated as though they were good. Declared not guilty. He says, quote, this is meaningless. Here's the point. This world is filled with injustice. Sometimes this injustice benefits us, so we don't even really mind it. Well, that was wrong, but it helped me, so I'm okay with it. Rarely do we passionately feel that angst regarding injustice unless it hits our life or the life of someone we love. Then we find ourselves emotionally frustrated and invested. As we lift our eyes up from our little life to survey what is really going on in this world, we see the same thing that Solomon does. Here's what he's saying. Sometimes wicked people get huge funerals where people stand up and they say nice things about them that are not even true. Sometimes even evildoers get praised in the house of worship. You can be a really, really, really bad person and a deacon. Criminals get away with crimes, which only encourages more criminals to commit more crimes. That's what he's saying. He's also saying sometimes the most evil people live the longest lives. Why do they get more days? They waste every one of them. To make matters worse, he says, sometimes the good people are vilified and the bad people are vindicated. Solomon says that this is all, quote, so meaningless. Anyone paying attention to keeping score has to wonder why they should not live an evil life filled with sin and selfishness if they can get rich, be praised, live long, prosper, and even find them a church that gives them a leadership position and eventually a really nice funeral. You felt that way? Someone says that the key to keeping our head on straight and our heart right is to quote-unquote fear God. This is a big issue, dear friend. It says in Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This world is filled with foolishness. You and I are filled with foolishness, and the only way out is to fear God. The answer, the anecdote to foolishness is fear. The difference between an ungodly life and a godly life is to remember God and not forget God. God's justice, he's saying, may be delayed as he waits for sinners to repent, but God's justice will not be denied. Those who persist in a life of sin without ever turning to the Lord Jesus are not getting away with anything. That's what he's saying. 
Instead, they're stacking up everything for a brutal sentencing to an eternal hell. See, it looks like everybody's getting away with everything because the sheriff hasn't showed up yet. Once the sheriff shows up, everything changes. According to the Bible, the Lord Jesus is the sheriff, and he rides in on a white horse. And once he does, everything that everyone's been getting away with comes to an end. And then the sheriff gets off his horse. He starts rounding up the criminals. And before you know it, they've been hauled off to jail. That's kind of the Bible's Western narrative of the end of time with the Lord Jesus coming back on a white horse. Bringing with him a sword, not really a gun, but that's the imagery. Here comes the sheriff. Now, as the wicked people are carousing and stealing and looting and lying and hurting and frustrating and sinning, the townspeople can just stand there crying and weeping and shaking their heads and wondering, maybe we should just join them. Just start stealing and robbing and killing and lying and do what they do. But, but wisdom says, no, the sheriff is coming. Need to fear him, respect him, revere him, honor him, consider him. Just because it looks like they're getting away with things, they're not. Once the sheriff shows up, it's all going to be over. Never forget that. And this theme of fearing God is crucial to our understanding of the Bible and crucial to our understanding of Ecclesiastes. See, because God is love, but love is not God. God is also just, and he's good, and he's holy, and he's righteous, and he's a judge. And roughly five times, Ecclesiastes returns to this theme of fearing God the judge. The two major occasions are here in Ecclesiastes 8, as well as the concluding, yes, English is my first language, and final chapter, chapter 12. The point is that life under the sun makes no sense if there is not a final judgment before God for all people. right? If there's no sheriff, if there's no judge, if there's no jail, well, then why not just live as a law unto yourself. If there is a sheriff, if there is a judge, if there is a jail, boy, you really got to factor that into all your decisions. <clears throat> Let me use an analogy. Let's say there were no police officers and no prisons in the world. Would you live differently than if you knew that the police were keeping an eye on you and they had the authority to sentence you to prison if you broke any laws. Absolutely. Absolutely. The wise person knows that God is a judge who meets out eternal sentencing, whereas the fool denies this fact. The wise person knows that Jesus is coming back as the sheriff, and, and the fool denies this fact. The wise person knows that there is an eternal jail for the rebels, and the fool denies this fact. 
And during this life where injustice occurs, here's what he's saying. It looks like the fool is right, but that's only an illusion. And one day the sheriff comes back and one day the sheriff rounds up all the disobedient and the sheriff holds court and the sheriff does sentence. And what this leads to is a fear of God that is reverential, emotional, practical, worshipful, and personal. Because eternity is a very long time. What he's giving us here is a perspective that only happens if you really believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and the storyline of the Bible. Do you believe that Jesus is coming back? Do you believe that he will judge the living and the dead? Do you believe that there will be the white throne judgment seat of Christ? Do you believe that there will be an eternal sentencing to heaven and hell? And do you believe that Jesus has not missed anyone or anything in the history of the world, that he is all-knowing and all-good and all-just and will deal with all people in all things for all time? If you believe that, it gives you a bit of patience, a bit of perspective, and a bit of peace. And the truth is, in our hearts, because we're made in the image and likeness of a good, just, wise, holy, truthful God, we want this. Um, a while back, there was a hit movie, American Sniper. Maybe you saw it. My wife and I did. And it was a story about, we'll call him a wicked man who plotted to bring great harm to innocent civilians. And for many years, it looked like he got away with it. You remember the story? It looked like there was no justice for him. As a result, it encouraged others to do similar things, terrorist activities. And I know some of you are young and you're idealistic and you're multicultural and multi-perspectival and you've got a minor in sociology and you've got a tolerance and diversity certificate from the School of Objective Lawgiving. But if you can't look at certain people and say, that's wrong, that's a terrorist, not just a freedom fighter, that's unacceptable, not just an alternative perspective, then you need to read more Bible. Anyways, in this movie, Osama bin Laden creates havoc, terror, takes innocent lives, sends people into panic. Um, some are living in fear. Others are living, wanting to follow in his footsteps. He accomplishes great wickedness and evil. He is participating in masterminding uh, destruction and death and devastation. And he would say that his cause was just and it was in the name of God. Certainly ain't the God of the Bible. And people are waiting. Where's the justice? Where's the sheriff? When is there some justice? Well, the whole movie is about that. And eventually, don't want to 
ruin the movie and watch it for yourself. Um, justice comes in the form of a bullet. And a lot of people cheered in theaters. And a lot of people paid money to go watch the story that they already knew, but they wanted to experience it emotionally. Because somewhere in the human soul, we love justice. We just do. And as Christians, it drives us to one of two places, the cross of Jesus or the throne of Jesus. We love that on the cross, Jesus brought justice for wicked, evil doers like you and me. He substituted himself and he died in our place for our sins and justice was met, but we were loved and forgiven and God's holiness was vindicated and God's grace was exemplified and we rejoice and we cheer for the sheriff. And justice either comes at the cross of Jesus or the white throne of Jesus. For those who refuse to accept the work of Jesus on the cross, they face the work of Jesus on the white throne. They stand before him to give an account. Right? The sheriff is coming. No one is getting away with anything. All they are doing is stacking up everything for their day in court. And they're sentencing to an eternal fate. Man, I, I'm just burdened for a generation that has so little regard for justice that they have a hard time even acknowledging wickedness, including in themselves. Solomon is saying, understand, dear friend, that justice fully comes eventually. Man, it came for me at the cross of Jesus Christ. For others who refuse to turn from sin and trust in him, it comes on judgment day at his second coming. Those who know that live in the fear of God. Those who accept that live in the fear of God. Those who uh, enjoy that live in the fear of God. So what do we do in the meantime until that day comes? What do we, what do, we do? How do we live? It's all pretty serious and pretty heavy, amen? I mean, I'm just sitting here alone talking to you, and I got pretty fired up. Well, here's a final word for all of us. You ready? Our time together just got dark. It got serious. We're talking about wickedness and the fear of God. Got to say it like that if you really mean it. Shouldn't this lead to a 
a somber life, a devoted life, a holy life, a committed life, a, a zealous life, a focused life, an invested life. Okay, yeah, but how about a happy life? He completely flips this thing in a way that you would not see coming. And he says that serious people have a serious problem. See, here's what I think he's saying, and I'm going to read you Ecclesiastes 8.15 in just a second. If you know that God's got it, you can calm down a bit. You can, you can relax a bit. God's, God's got the world. God's got history. He's got it. That's good to know. It kind of relieves a bit of a burden. Doesn't mean we don't have a part to play, but we have a part to play in what he's doing and he's gonna do it. Serious problem, serious people rather, have a serious problem. You ready? Ecclesiastes 8.15. After all we've just been through, here's what he says. I hope it's, I hope it shocks you. So I recommend having fun. That's awesome. Are you fun? If not, you may be disobeying a clear command of Scripture. He says, so I recommend having fun. Because there is nothing better for people in this world to eat, drink, and enjoy life. That way they will experience some happiness along with all the hard work God gives them under the sun. So yeah, there's a lot of hard work that God gives you under the sun. To work against injustice, to take care of your responsibilities, to love and serve others in practical ways. He's just went through a lot of ways to try and bring about change in our world. That's a lot of hard work. But God wants you to experience some happiness along the way. You know why? The kingdom of God's gonna be awesome. It's gonna have fun. Did you know the kingdom of God's gonna have fun? It's gonna have fun. You're gonna like it. It's not gonna be like an eternal trip to the dentist. You're gonna like it. I tell my kids that all the time. Heaven's gonna be fun. We're gonna like it. One of my kids said, so it's like dying and going to Disneyland. That's when they were little. Yeah, kind of like that. Because for them, they're thinking, that's fun. Yeah, it's like that. Jesus is fun. Why do you think they kept inviting him to parties and kids wanted to hang out with him? Because he was, he was fun. Yeah, Jesus is holy and serious. And once he deals with all the sin and the sinners, it's just going to be fun time. That's all. He says to eat. What do you eat? Do you eat good food? Do you eat meals with friends and family? Do you, do you sit down and practice for the wedding supper of the lamb? Do, he says to drink. I don't know what you drink. I'm having some iced tea right now. I had some uh, really nice uh, coffee this morning. And enjoy life. Huh. Do you, do you enjoy your life? 
do you enjoy your life or do you do you endure your life? There's a lot of people who just endure their life. They don't really enjoy their life. Hmm. See, until the final judgment, we're encouraged to have fun, eat something good, drink something nice, and make some memories by enjoying life. And this is not denial of reality. He just told us that life is filled with injustice and frustration and work to be done. So we should work for justice. But we also need to not become so obsessed, driven, and serious that we lose sight of the goodness of God and greatness of His coming kingdom. Are you one of those people who's very dour and very driven? You accomplish a lot, but you live very little? Are you one of those people who can get so upset, so frustrated, so unsettled by injustice in your life, someone else's life, an organization or a political system, that you become obsessed? You cannot rest. There is no joy until this is changed. Some years ago, as a new Christian, I read a book called Orthodoxy by a man named G.K. Chesterton, and in it he talks about the madman. Are you the madman? He says that the madman is someone who is so obsessed with one thing that they lose sight of all other things. That's my summary. They relate everything to the one thing which causes them to eventually become conspiracy theorists and single-issue voters trying to pull everything that's unrelated together in a way that only makes sense in their convoluted mind. Here's what Chesterton says, and it echoes Ecclesiastes. Quote, If the madman could for an instant become careless, he would become sane. End quote. He says that this is rarely possible for the madman because, quote, he is not hampered by a sense of humor. The madman, he says, is not the man who has lost his reason. The madman is the man who has lost everything except his reason, end quote. Some of you got to get out of your head and get into your life. Some of you need to put down your cause and... Go find some fun. Some of you are just ranting and raving and you need to be eating and drinking. Some of you say that God is in control, but the truth is, if you can't take a day off, if you can't eat a donut, if you can't take a nap, if you can't shut up, then you might actually think that you're in control and that the world will cease to be a good place unless you're constantly paying attention and obsessing and pontificating and planning and working and doing. God's got it. You need to do the things that he's asked you to do. You need to work hard and pursue justice. And he's just told us how to do that in a way that honors the Lord. I guess you can take this as a command or an invitation. I tend to be one who sees a lot of commands in the Bibles as invitation. I think God here, you could read it as God is commanding you to have fun. 
to eat, drink, and enjoy your life and experience some happiness. Well, it kind of sounds a little odd. Or you could take it as an invitation. God says, I want you to have some fun. I want you to eat and drink and enjoy your life. And I want you to find some ways to experience happiness. And immediately some of your religious folks will say, but not sinning, not by sinning, not by doing sinful things. Okay, fine. Fine. I agree. But still, fun, eat, drink, enjoy, happiness. Those are all good words. Christianity is not often marked by those things, and we're not often accused of those things. Jesus was. Drunkard, glutton, friend of sinners. Well, he wasn't a drunkard, he wasn't a glutton, but people did like to hang out with him because he was okay eating, drinking, enjoying life, having some fun, and experiencing some happiness. That's why people wanted to be with him. That's why some of us want to be with him forever. So here's an invitation from God who's a father, and he loves you. Find something that is not ungodly that you enjoy and go do it once in a while and take a break. Clear your head. Purify your heart. Visit your friends. Enjoy your family. Put down your internet accessible device. Stop freaking out and arguing and plotting and planning and demanding and railing. Maybe you can get to that tomorrow. Today. Maybe it's good to practice for the kingdom of God when everything will be peaceful and wonderful and joyful and and Jesus will be present and wickedness will be no more. And we won't need the cops. We won't need the courts. We won't need the jails. We don't need the wars. We won't need the things that we need today because sin and wickedness will be no more. Until that day, we got a lot of work to do, starting with in ourselves. But once that day comes, those things come to an end and the Lord Jesus will just have nothing but a, a kingdom of joy, a kingdom of fun, a kingdom of eating and drinking and happiness. And Jesus is wonderful. And some of us are so serious that we have a serious problem seriously enjoying him and the life that he's given us. That's not to turn a blind eye to injustice. It's not to negate hard work. But it's to say, God loves us. He knows what's good for us. He knows that we will become obsessed and a mad man or a mad woman if all we obsess over and think about and focus on is some injustice that has captured us, devoting our whole lives to that one thing and in the meantime, missing everyone and everything that God would have for us to enjoy, to love, to serve. I can think of one person in closing, I didn't intend to share this, but they have a wonderful spouse and some pretty great kids and a couple of great grandkids. And they're so obsessed with their cause. They're so obsessed with their 
um, pursuit of what they perceive to be bringing justice to injustice that they've become a bit of a madman. They've become so fixated on one thing that they've lost sight of everything else. They are so driven and passionate and consumed that they're no longer any fun to be around. People that used to enjoy them have walked away from them. People that used to eat and drink with them no longer see them or know them. And they would say that they are doing a good thing and a godly thing. But according to Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 15, they are forgetting perhaps the most important thing. That enjoying God and the life that he gives is ultimately the telos. It is the aim. It is the objective. It is the end of all the hard work under the sun. So I recommend having fun because there is nothing better for people in this world than to eat, drink, and enjoy life. That way they will experience some happiness along with all the hard work God has given them under the sun. Uh, Father, I just feel compelled, even though I'm just sitting here by myself, to pray for people who will give me the great honor of hearing this. And God, I confess that I'm guilty. Um, there are times that I have thought that my cause was just and it was not. There are times that I got out ahead of you and was not patient and prayerful and prudent and as a result um, was not effective in trying to bring about change. Um, Lord God, I am convicted that sometimes I have certainly forgotten that you are ruling over all and you've got it. And Lord, um, I, I really want to, to learn and I pray for my friends that they would learn and that we would learn to trust in your sovereignty, that you are good and you have things in control, that this would compel us to do our part and to do the right thing in the right way, with the right heart, at the right time, for the right motive, as much as we're able and as best as we can by the Holy Spirit's power. And Lord God, we will all just be burned out, stressed and depressed. We'll be mad men and mad women who are so obsessed with one thing that we overlook so many other things that will become people who lose our joy and our happiness. We'll forget to eat and drink and celebrate uh, the grace that you've poured out on us and the people that you've surrounded us with. Lord God, some of us are dark. Some of us are dour. Um, some of us are melancholy. Some of us are obsessed. Some of us are in a deep, dark place because we have ceased to obey the wisdom of Solomon in Ecclesiastes 8.15. Help us to have fun. Help us to be fun Christians and fun spouses and fun parents and fun friends and fun neighbors who know how to eat, know how to drink, know how to experience and enjoy life. And when people ask us why, we say, we are going to do this forever with Jesus. So we're practicing because we can't wait to be with him. Because when all is said and done and the sheriff comes back, the kingdom that he sets up will be forever, and it will be wonderful. So, Lord Jesus, keep our hearts inclined, living, straining, striving, leaning toward that day in your good name. Amen.